Our sermon text today is Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. The Bible says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Join with me, let us pray. Our gracious Lord, we read in our text many allusions to the Old Testament and to prophecies. Help us, Lord, to tie together by your spirit, your words, that we might understand what they meant to Israel as they responded to the preaching of John. And then may we uh, uh, glean things that we might learn today to apply to ourselves uh, that we might also bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Grant us this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. May please be seated. Well, after... After spending five weeks in Matthew 2, looking at Jesus' birth and infancy, I, uh, I thought it was time to continue on in our study of Matthew's gospel. And so as a result, even though we're still in the Christmas season, I decided to go ahead and move on to Matthew 3 to begin our look at John the Baptist and the preparations he makes for the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. So with that in mind, as we come to our text, we we fast forward about 30 years from Matthew 2. Besides for one episode, uh, when Jesus was 12 years old, the gospel writers uh, just didn't see fit to tell us much about Jesus' life prior to when he begins his public ministry at about the age of 30. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're told briefly about events surrounding Jesus' birth. And next thing you know, uh, Jesus appears on the scene to be baptized by John 
about 30 years later. That's where our text today begins, in preparation for Jesus' baptism, which we'll be learning about in the weeks to come. Now, before we look at our text, I want to note I've preached from this passage twice before in the context of Advent, the second time not too long ago. As a result, if some of the things I say today sound familiar, it's because some of what I'll share, I have shared before. Now, we'll, however, take uh, particularly the application in a different direction, which will in part explain why I decided to transition today to the next chapter in our study. So with that in mind, let's pick up with our study of Matthew's gospel with a little review to set the context for about for what we're about to hear. Okay? We've seen Matthew is telling the story of Jesus as the story of Israel retold. That's why in the last chapter we read of an exodus, though not from Egypt, but to Egypt, because Israel has become as corrupt as Egypt by keeping its people in spiritual bondage. Now, if we keep the storyline of the Exodus in mind, it's not surprising that the next thing we would read about is a baptism. And I say that because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that the Red Sea crossing was Israel's baptism which occurred right after the nation's exodus from Egypt. Therefore, this is that's the next thing in our story today. This is where our, 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 our text picks up. When we come to our text, the year is late A.D. 26, early A.D. 27, probably around wintertime, probably around this time of year. About three and a half years prior to Jesus' death and resurrection in the spring of A.D. 30. So we know from Luke's account of John's birth, John was born for the purpose of preparing the way for his cousin, Jesus the Messiah. In fact, as we heard earlier, his father prophesied that John would prepare the way of the Lord according to the prophecy of Isaiah. Therefore, when our text opens, John is in the wilderness of Judea, calling the nation to repent, he says, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as a rationale for his summons, he quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3, which was the prophecy alluded to at his birth. And we'll say more about that in, in a little while. In the meantime, though, First thing I want us to see is the description we're given of John that follows our introduction to it. Verses 4 to 6, Matthew writes, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. What I want us to understand is by drawing our attention to John's dress and diet, the gospel writers don't intend to present John as like a reclusive wild man as it's sometimes taught. 
Rather, they give us this information so that we will make a connection between his ministry and the ministry of Elijah. The hairy man with a leather belt who ministered to Israel in the wilderness by calling the nation to repentance many centuries before. If we're going to understand John's ministry, we must keep this connection between Elijah and him in mind. To ensure that we do so, the gospel writers not only make typological and thematic connections between the two figures, they actually come out and tell us clearly there is a connection between Elijah and John. Luke, for example, tells us the angel Gabriel announced to Zacharias that John would be a prophet like Elijah. And Jesus confirms this later in the Gospels. When the multitudes make comparisons between John's ministry and his own, Jesus says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah to come. So when we put all this information together, then it should cause us to reflect about the kind of ministry Elijah had, because it's going to shed light on the kind of ministry John has as well. In other words, it's important to recall Elijah ministered to the northern kingdom of Israel during a time of apostasy. And he ministered to the nation to call a remnant back to God when the nation had departed from it. That being the case, we should understand it's going to be the same with John the Baptist. When he, a prophet like Elijah, summons the Jews of his day to repentance and renewal. And likewise begins to gather a remnant of the people around him. In other words, John's clothing, which is obviously reminiscent of Elijah's, helped to identify him to the Jews and to define his ministry. So in other words, for a prophet to dress like Elijah and appear in the wilderness was a condemnation of the nation as well as a clear invitation to a new start for the nation. And the reason the nation needed a new start also implied that the time in which John lived was parallel to the time uh, 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 or to the days of Elijah when the whole nation was engaged in gross national Apostasy, especially on the part of the leaders. You see a parallel. When John rebukes Herod uh, uh, for his wicked wife, people would naturally conjure up images of Elijah rebuking Ahab and Jezebel. In both cases, the perversity of the leaders was typical of the spiritual condition of the whole nation. Now, Besides for his clothing, the mention of John's ministry occurring in the wilderness beyond the Jordan also provides essential historical setting for understanding John's work. 
For the Jews of John's day, his ministry in the wilderness around the Jordan would evoke historical memories that would also communicate in powerful ways the spiritual status of their generation. And once more, it would be a call for a faithful remnant and for a new start for the nation. To explain. If you recall, there was a time in Elijah's day when the northern kingdom had turned so far from God that Elijah seemed to think that he alone was left of the faithful till God assured him that he had 7,000 others who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And so when John essentially reenacts episodes and locations from Elijah's ministry, it would have been clear to the faithful that he too was again calling out a remnant, a true Israel from within the larger apostate Israel, another 7,000 so to speak, to become the new people of God. See, all of these connections would have come to people's minds. In addition, by conducting his ministry in the wilderness beyond the Jordan, John was also calling to mind the time when Joshua first led the children of Israel across the Jordan to bring them into the promised land in a miraculous crossing reminiscent of the Red Sea crossing. Remember, the Red Sea, God parted the waters of the Red Sea, but he also parted the waters of the Jordan as well when Israel came into the land. Okay? John is at that location now. As a result, to ensure that we see that connection as well, like Elijah before him in verses 7 to 9, John rebukes the corrupt leaders of his day, particularly the scribes and Pharisees, by calling them a brood of vipers and warning them not to think that their descent from Abraham's lineage would provide protection against judgment. And then after, after issuing this warning, he says, For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. What is he talking about there? Well, again, keep in mind what we just said. To understand this reference, we must recall after Joshua led the nation across the Jordan into the land, he set up 12 memorial stones, one for each tribe, on the banks of the Jordan. Most commentators believe that it's almost certain these stones are the stones, the very stones that the, the, the stones that John references are the very stones Joshua had set up centuries before. Therefore, since those stones represented Israel, 12 for the 12 tribes, all indications are John is again, he's calling the nation to cross over the Jordan River. To make a new start as a renewed priestly people who will now establish God's kingdom. N.T. Wright 
summarizes the whole scene like this. He says, anyone collecting people in the Jordan wilderness, in the Jordan wilderness was symbolically saying, this is the new exodus. Anybody offering water baptism for the forgiveness of sins was saying, you can have here and now what you would normally get through the temple cult. Anybody inviting those who wish to do so to pass through an initiatory rite of this kind was symbolically saying, here is the true Israel that is to be vindicated by Yahweh. By implications, those who do not join in had forfeited the right to be regarded as the covenant people. In these ways, completely credible within the history of first century Judaism, what John was doing must be seen and can only be seen as a prophetic renewal movement within Judaism. A renewal, however, that aimed not at renewing the existing structures, but at replacing them. We're going back to the beginning. We are establishing a new priestly people. People who are going to be baptized unto Jesus the Messiah, whom John is preparing the way for. Here's the last thing I want us to point out. When you keep in mind everything we've just said about John's dress, the connection with Elijah, his location, everything. We start to understand why John is now performing baptisms in the Jordan and why nearly everyone in the surrounding region was coming to see him and be baptized by him. Quite simply, the reason John is calling all to repentance and offering baptisms for the remission of sins is because Israel is not ready for the coming of the Lord, the great and dreadful day of the Lord foretold by the prophets. Ralph Smith explains it like this. The nation had become so defiled by her sin and apostasy that her temple had become a den of thieves rather than a house of prayer for all people. Like a leopard, Israel was not qualified to enter the house of God. That's why she had to leave the spiritual Egypt she had created for herself to go back out into the wilderness to renew her covenant with God. And therefore, she needed a cleansing bath and a prophet to, again, lead her across the Jordan River all over again to make a renewed start as God's priestly people amid whom he could once more dwell amid again, dwell amid. And so in all these ways, the ministry of John the Baptist prepared the people, was intended to prepare the people for this, this sort of arrival, to make them a new special people for the coming of the Messiah. That's why John is performing baptisms. Now here's something that, that we, we don't understand very well, but is of extreme importance to grasp. What am I talking about? Today, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm thinking seriously about devoting a, a, a sermon or two to this. But it's generally believed in our day that baptism is some new covenant rite that just begins with John the Baptist. Uh, 
I shared not too long ago in our study of Chronicles, though, the New Testament makes it clear that all the Old Covenant ceremonial washings were, in fact, baptisms. And we see this several places in the New Testament. The places where, the place where it's made most clear is probably Hebrews 9, 10, which, which speaks about Old Covenant ceremonial washings, which the author says where, this is Hebrews 9, 10, were concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. What's interesting is that that word washings is literally the Greek word baptismos, which we usually translate in English as baptisms. What that means is that all the old covenant washings, which were performed whenever something or someone became defiled, were simply old covenant baptisms. The reason why this is so important is because the laws of uncleanness, particularly in Leviticus 11 to 15, required not only the baptism of individuals, but also the baptism of household articles, baptism of clothes, etc., which would have all happened on a, on a regular occurrence, given all the different ways somebody could become unclean in the Old Covenant. And that means that any Jew who took the law of Moses seriously would practice baptism for all sorts of reasons on a frequent basis. In fact, it's hard to imagine an entire week going by without the need for at least one baptism on the part of at least one uh, member of the family. Think about little kids bringing in uh, unclean animals and everything else. It wouldn't take long before an uncleanness spread, so you'd have to baptize things. Now, Lest anybody thinks this would be a big hassle, we need to note that almost all Old Testament baptisms were self-administered. Okay? Something became, you know, a, a lizard got in your, your dish, okay? You washed it yourself, right? You didn't have to go to a priest or anything like that. Baptizing a clothes, oneself, household utensils, ordinarily did not require the ministry of a priest. All those baptisms were performed by the individual themselves. But the law of Moses prescribed three baptisms that had to be performed by someone other than the person being baptized. One was the baptism of a priest at their ordination. The second was likened to it. It was the baptism of a Levite who was being set apart to serve at the tabernacle. And finally, the third baptism was a baptism of, uh, or the cleansing of a leper, which is like the ordination of a priest. And the reason I say that is because a leper's reinstatement in the covenant community was a sort of priestly ordination because Israel as a whole was a nation of priests. Okay? So keep this in mind. All those Old Testament cleansings, purifications, are all baptisms. Most of the times you did it yourself. But there were three had to be performed by someone else. Now, here John is, he's out in the wilderness, dressed like Elijah, and he's baptizing people for the remission of their sins, and everybody is coming to him. And John is performing baptisms on others besides himself in the wilderness where the nation began. And that spoke volumes to the people. 
In summary, John's ministry said loud and clear, Israel had forgotten its calling as priest to the nations. John's ministry implied Israel had become apostate and unclean as lepers. And so for Israel to become Israel to be again, she needed to go back out to the wilderness where John ministered to cross the Jordan all over again. That's why John summons the nation to repentance and to be baptized in the Jordan for the remission of their sins. And that's why John was sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus by calling sinners to be reconciled to God and to one another. This is why John issues the warnings he does. He warns the Pharisees and Sadducees to flee from the wrath to come and to bear forth fruits worthy of repentance. In doing so, John is telling them that going through the motions of baptism and all that entails simply wasn't enough. Real repentance means a complete and lasting change of heart and life. Therefore, lest they think their, their ancestry from Abraham was, was sufficient to make right with God, John warns that when the king comes, he will burn in wrath against Israel's sin. He will chop down all the haughty trees. Allusion there is to Psalm 74, which describes the destruction of the temple as the devastation of a forest, and to Isaiah 10, which describes Assyria as Yahweh's axe. The difference is, in John's day, it was another Gentile power that threatened Israel. And that's why John is calling the nation to repentance before it's too late. Another greater than he was coming who would baptize with the spirit and fire and who would remove whatever chaff that remains after threshing. We know from history all that happened when the Romans invaded Israel in A.D. 70. And so what Matthew's readers must understand, and what we must understand now, is Israel has become Egypt and therefore must undergo a new exodus and become God's priestly people once again. Okay? That's the message of our text. What does it all have to do with us today? In other words, imagine John is preaching to us. What might he tell us? How might we apply his words to our situations? Are there some ways that we need to make some new beginnings as well? I suspect if you're anything like me, you're probably aware of some areas in your life that need working on. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if many of you made some New Year's resolutions that will begin tomorrow. So let me make a couple of suggestions about how we might apply this text to ourselves, and then we'll we'll wrap things up. Okay. One of the commentators, uh, one of the commentaries I read. Like in the situation in our text to a phone call, 
informing you that an inspector from corporate is on his way to your workplace and you've got to get the place in order on very short notice because it's a mess. Imagine that scenario now. First thing you're probably going to do is consider, you know, where do I start? In such a circumstance like that, you obviously, you, you, you're going to look around. What, what's the most glaring problem that I'm facing right now? What needs to be fixed or, or straightened above all? And you would, you would focus on that particular area, try to get it in order first as soon as possible. Then you can deal with the other issues. Just so happens in Luke's account of John's ministry, John provides some direction for how to do this. In other words, in Luke's extended account of John's ministry by the Jordan, he records various groups coming to John, asking his advice about how to bring forth fruits worthy repentance. And John gives specific advice to all the various groups, dealing with particular sins that would be temptations to them. Not only does John give specific advice regarding things to correct, he also gives ways to make the corrections. To cite one example, to the Roman soldiers who came to him for baptism, John tells them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. What I want us to see is John tells the soldiers both what not to do and also what to do. What I want us to see today is that the two are related, and seeing how they're related can often be important in helping us make lasting changes. To explain, when the Apostle Paul instructs people about how to make changes in their lives, he often gives the same sort of advice as John by telling people both what not to do as well as what to do. With the implication that the, the two go together, they're important. To the Ephesians, for example, Paul tells them what sin to put off, And virtue to put on in its place. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. To my point, the reason John and Paul both speak this way is because that's what sanctification is all about. It involves first putting off sinful habits and then establishing righteous ones in their place. And often success in putting away sinful habits is dependent upon whether new habits are established in place of the old ones. 
And this is why I decided to move forward to Matthew 3 today. Today's New Year's Eve. I suspect many of you are or cons- or are cons- you have or are considering New Year's resolutions. You look at this next year, it's a new it's an opportunity for you to make a new start, a new beginning. There are changes that you might want to make in the coming year because you realize there are areas you need to improve on. So what I'm saying today is that what we hear from John, given what we hear from John today, let me encourage you to consider if, before trying to establish a to-do list of goals for 2024, you first consider making a list of things you need to cut out of your life to make room for the things you want to do to improve your life. These are just examples. If, for example, you want to spend more time, you recognize the need to spend more time in God's word and in prayer. Maybe what you need to do first is resolve to spend less time on social media. If you want to get more exercise to take better care of yourself, you got to make room for it. You'll likely have to cut something out to make more time for it. Whatever it is. Those are just examples. But such is, think about this, such is the nature of bearing fruit in plants. Just as it is in bearing forth fruit worthy of repentance in our lives. All all my, my beloved vines in Napa Valley, they're dormant right now. But you know what they're doing? They're going through and they're pruning them. They do that in the winter to make room for the new shoots and bud break in the spring. What I'm saying it today is what is true, the one is true, the other. Sanctification typically in, involves getting rid of one thing and replacing it with another. Therefore, as you purpose to make changes in your life in the coming year, let me encourage you to consider both what to put off as well as what to put on. And whatever you do, strive to do it daily until your new righteous trait becomes as habitual as the old sinful habit. May God bless you this coming year as you use this opportunity to become renewed by bringing forth worthy, by bringing forth fruits worthy of repentance, by putting off sinful ways and putting on godly ways. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are like the the scribes and the Pharisees so often, Lord. We honor you with our lips. Our hearts are far from us. We uh, go through the motions uh, and and don't do the things that we uh, that we should do. And each of us know of areas in our lives that we uh, we need to make changes in. And this is always a great. A great time of the year to do these things. Help us, Lord, to understand how to do that, to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Help us consider areas that we need to cut uh, as well as areas we need to grow in. And bless our efforts as we uh, seek to be a more godly people who uh, might advance your kingdom in our own day. To that end, Lord, help us today, Lord, to be not merely hearers of the word, but doers as well. And grant uh, blessings upon our efforts in the coming year. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
continue to worship the Lord by bringing forth his tithes and our offerings.